Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, By no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time the voice answered from heaven, What God has made clean you must not call profane. This happened three times, then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angels standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced, and they praised God, saying, Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Art has an incredible power to convey the truth of the gospel. When it speaks of what it means to be fully human, just think about the book To Kill a Mockingbird or the movies in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Now, I need to confess that I read books and watch movies with an eye toward gospel themes, and I have, upon occasion, upset my family by pointing those themes out. They're likely to say to me, can't you just watch a movie to be watching a movie? And the honest answer is no. I, I guess it's just a hazard of the profession. One movie that has stayed with me for many years is a gem that I can't forget because of the truth that it told. The movie is older 
than most of you, many of you anyway, sitting here. So old, in fact, that the actors in it, Dennis Quaid and Lou Gossett Jr., were young men when the movie was produced. As I said, it stayed with me because of its truth. The movie's titled Enemy Mine, and it's a story set in the future when alien creatures from the planet Dracone are at war with the people on Earth. The movie opens as an alien from Dracone and a human being are marooned on a distant planet because both of their spaceships have been shot down in battle. Now, the Drac, by all standards of human judgment, was different. And for some people, probably also disgusting. He looked like a lizard who walked upright. The things he ate would not appear on my dinner table. He spoke a strange foreign language. And yet, by some twist of fate or war, he and the human being had to learn how to coexist in peace on that brutal planet. It was no easy task. At the beginning, the two were ready to kill each other, and they would rather starve than eat anything that happened to be on the other's plate. The drac wasn't going to learn English, and the human being had no interest in, in drac. And so they pointed, and they gestured, and they criticized and ridiculed each other. Until a terrible storm came to the planet that pelted both of them with baseball-sized hail. And to make matters worse, a really ugly creature came up from under the ground and tried to kill both of them. In the scurrying to find shelter and to pick up anything that might be edible, the walls began to break down between the two of them. They began by calling one another by name. The drac became Jerry, which was a sort of human form of what his name was in Drac, and the human being became Davidge, which was a reasonable facsimile of his last name in English. As I said, they looked for anything that was edible, and they also began to share their stories. They talked about their families, their hopes, and their dreams. And slowly as they did so, the walls began to crumble, and they became family. Davidge had a habit of going on scouting expeditions all over the planet. And on one of these expeditions, he made it to the far side of the planet where he discovered a mining operation that was run by human beings 
but staffed by DRAC slave labor. Davidge never told Jerry about that mining operation, even though it represented the only chance he had to get home. Because, as I said, by that time they were family, and Davidge had no interest in exposing Jerry to the threat of slavery. Not long after the scouting expedition, Davidge came to learn a very interesting quirk in drac biology. It seems that dracs have no control over where and when they will give birth. They are a unisex creation and species, and at some point in their adult lives, they simply give birth. So Jerry turned up pregnant and died giving birth to baby zombies. Davidge raised zombies as his own with strict instructions to the little guy not to venture to the far side of the planet. But you know what happened. Childhood curiosity took over. Zamis went to the far side of the planet. There he was captured and enslaved. Davidge came, tried to rescue him, and was shot. The miners sent him back to Earth in a body bag. Now, don't despair. This movie does have a happy ending. Davidge woke up before they buried him. He took a spaceship. He went back to the planet. Again, he risked his life trying to rescue zombies. This time he was successful, and he took zombies back home to Dracone. Now, friends, I know this movie has stayed with me, not because of the scenery or the acting. It stayed with me because of the truth it tells, which was the same truth the Apostle Peter learned in his encounter with Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion, a Roman army officer, and even though he didn't look like a lizard, being a Gentile Roman army officer was just about as bad to Peter. The things that Cornelius ate would never have been on Peter's table. Most of the very earliest Christians were Jews who accepted Jesus as Messiah, but also followed the Jewish laws. They were very careful about what they put on their dinner table and who they sat down with at that dinner table to eat. For them, some people were clean and other people were unclean. And they did not share their fried chicken and mashed potatoes with the unclean. It was an interesting conundrum because Cornelius, even though he was a Gentile and a Roman army officer, 
was also a man who loved God and who was generous with the poor. But he was a Roman army officer and by the definition of any good Jew, unclean. Cornelius was also a man of prayer and he had an encounter with God in a vision in which he saw an angel of God telling him to go get Simon Peter and bring him to his house. Now, Peter also had an encounter with God. His took the form of a daydream, or it would probably be more accurate to say a day nightmare. In Peter's nightmare, a sheet came down from heaven, and it was filled with creepy crawly snakes and vultures and other weird animals, none of which would ever have been roasted for Sabbath dinner. And along with the weird birds and animals came the voice of God, Peter, eat up! Oh, no, Lord, not me. Nothing unclean or impure has ever crossed my lips. Now, to make matters worse, this particular vision happened three times. And three times Peter said, not me, Lord, nothing unclean, nothing impure. I think it's a shame that Scripture really has no good way to indicate to us tone of voice. But I suspect that after three not-me lords, God was a little miffed and growled back to Peter, you cannot call unclean what I have created as clean. Peter awoke from the nightmare confused, and he was trying to figure out what it meant. He stayed confused until he met Cornelius and came to understand that God was at work in the life of Cornelius. God told him to go to the house of Cornelius where he preached the good news, and Cornelius and his entire household came to believe in Jesus Christ. They received the Holy Spirit, and they were baptized. It's a wonderful story of conversion. But I think it's important for us to remember that the two remained alien to one another, Cornelius and Peter. After all, one was circumcised, the other was not. One was a Jew, the other was a Roman. They didn't eat the same things. They had a lot of cultural differences. And yet, in Jesus Christ, they were called to be part of the same family of God. It's a wonderful conversion story. But we need to remember that welcoming Gentiles into the church was not easy for the early church. We actually pick this story up today. 
as Peter has gone back to explain himself to those Jewish Christian leaders in Jerusalem. And the story went something like this. Oh, gee, guys, I know he's a Gentile army officer, and I know he eats garbage, but we both had holy visions. And after all, God told me to go preach at his house, and he received the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and his entire house was baptized, which was met with an amazed response on the part of those leaders. They said, you mean God has given the gift of the Holy Spirit and repentance to Gentiles? Wow. But I also suspect that there was an unspoken pondering in many of their lives. What was God thinking? Well, friends, God was thinking about God's purpose, which is and has always been the conversion of the entire cosmos, the conversion and salvation of the universe and everyone in it. Cornelius was converted, all right, but Peter was too. Peter was converted from a very narrow understanding of God's grace, lived out only among Jewish Christians, into a much broader understanding of our God who loves and welcomes all people. As I said, we can't forget that welcoming the Gentiles into the life of the early church was not easy. The entire book of Acts speaks to the struggles that took place. Paul's entire ministry was bedeviled by that conflict. And yet, folks, this holy work of welcoming people into the family of God is the call God gives each one of us. It's also important for us to remember that we Gentiles are no better than those early Jewish Christians. Conflict with those who are different from us is a part of all of our lives. We are Gentiles, and in most of the stories in Scripture, we're the ones who get welcomed. But we're Gentiles who also have Gentiles. Gentiles are those people who are alien to us on the basis of how they look or act or think. Gentiles are those folks whose politics and religion and national heritage are all wrong. Gentiles are the people who irritate us, whose level of education or standard of living may not be ours. We even managed to turn one another into Gentiles in the life of the church. You know, the Gentiles, those are those folks who don't understand the Bible the same time, same way we do. 
Gentiles, those are the folks whose style of worship is not the style that speaks to our hearts. Worship wars have been the bane of the church's existence for a long time, folks. So, I have a question for you. A really important question, one I want you to think seriously about. Who are your Gentiles? Who are those folks? Who, if God was to send you a holy nightmare, would be sitting in the middle of that sheet as God said, what I have created clean, you cannot call unclean. We all have our Gentiles, friends, and we are all called to move beyond the boundaries we create between other people. It is not easy work, but it is important work. Think about Jerry and Dobbage. They had to figure out a way to live together to survive, and in so doing, they shared their stories. They found common ground. They learned to trust one another to the point that when Zomis was born, Davidge loved him. He was family because Davidge loved his father, Jerry. They worked at it hard enough and long enough that the barriers came down. I want you to think about Jesus' life. What a great example he is for us. Jesus built most of his relationships around the dinner table, a habit for which he was greatly criticized. Folks said, ah, he's with tax collectors and sinners. He ate the last meal he ate with his disciples, who were his closest friends, but friends that he knew would deny him, betray him, and flee into the night. And yet, he washed their feet and spoke of his love for them. Week by week, Sunday by Sunday, Jesus spreads a table of grace before us and promises to be present with us in the gifts of bread and wine and makes clear that all people, all people are welcome at his table of grace. Now, folks, he has entrusted to us the work of tearing down barriers and building God's family, the church. He has entrusted to us the work of making sure that all people, not some, not most, but all people understand they are beloved children of God who have a place in the family of God.
So I have another question for you. Have you ever invited one of your Gentiles to dinner? Have you ever taken the time to hear that person's story, to hear that person's hopes and dreams, struggles and contributions? What difference might it make in your relationship with that person if you dared to extend that invitation? And how might God use that encounter to shape you as a more faithful follower of Jesus Christ? Folks, the body of Christ is open to all people. And that means that our Gentiles are in too. It means we have holy work to do. Now, relationships are difficult. They're difficult in our families. They're difficult in the church. You know, we even manage to turn our spouses and our children into Gentiles at times. But we have come to understand in our homes that loving relationships are built through caring and compassion and forgiveness over time. It's not any different in the church. The dinner table is not the only place loving relationships can be created. It just happens to be a really good place. But loving relationships are also created when we take the time, every opportunity that we have, to hear another person's story, to learn who they are before we form an opinion of that person. Because folks, it is really hard to hate someone whose story we know. Loving relationships are formed when we use language in every situation, and especially on social media, that represents the worth and dignity of every person. Loving relationships are created when we tear down barriers of fear and extend a hand of compassion. We live in a world that is ripe with conflict. Our public discourse is filled with vitriol. We fear people more than we love them. And yet, Jesus entrusts to us the holy work of tearing down barriers and opening the church to all God's beloved children. He never said it was easy work. It's not. But it does happen to be the work through which we become more like Jesus Christ, which finally is what conversion and salvation are all about. Friends, our lives like a good movie are on public display on a daily basis. Think about that. 
our lives like a good movie are on public display on a daily basis. So let them be art. Let them be art which shouts, no matter how different you are, you are a beloved child of God, and we have a place for you at the family table. In the name of the God whose love for us is unconditional, amen.